welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. Hello and welcome to another episode of Legally Brief. Today, I sit down with my partner at Grising Law, Cheryl Borland. Cheryl and I discuss what student athletes and academic institutions should know about name, image, and likeness agreements. Cheryl has over 20 years of experience as a corporate counsel advising closely held companies through the full life cycle of their businesses. She guides clients on matters such as business formation, compliance, corporate governance, and drafting the necessary documents. Cheryl devotes much of her practice to helping small and women-owned businesses navigate the legal system and launch their companies. The landscape dealing with name, image, and likeness agreements changed drastically in 2021 with the U.S. Supreme Court decision of NCAA versus Alston. So if you're a student athlete, parent, or maybe you work at an academic institution as a coach, athletic director, or assistant athletic director, this episode is for you. Listen in to understand and to get a better insight into name, image, and likeness agreements and the impact that will have on your institution and student athletes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Cheryl Orlin. It is always a pleasure to have a conversation with an expert in a field and to talk about a topic that is both relevant, timely, and involving. And that's the topic that I'm going to discuss today with my colleague, from Grising Law, Cheryl Borland. Cheryl was kind enough to have this conversation about name, image, and likeness. And I feel especially lucky for all of the listeners out there because this is what Cheryl does. And by this, I mean, Cheryl has the eye, has the experience, has the know-how to look at contracts and to look at the different players in agreements that bind us. And particularly, As I have joined this firm last year in 2021, I have grown to understand Cheryl to be the type of individual that not only cares about and has a high degree of work ethic, but she cares about the individuals that are entering into these contracts. So that's why I reached out to Cheryl to talk about student athletes, name, image, and likeness, and what's going on with these agreements being deregulated. And as if, you're, if you've watched the news or ESPN or any type of social media for at least the last five minutes, as they say, if you have not been living under a rock, you are aware that for the first time in college sports, athletes have been able to leverage, and we'll get into our conversation about whether it's being leveraged properly transparently and to their advantage, but students have been able to um, use their name, image, and likeness to market and make money. So with that, and Cheryl and 
Cheryl and I had, we've had discussions and you know that I will make a nice intro before this, but I will say just briefly that Cheryl is of counsel to Grising Law and I have enjoyed working with her and her practice, among other things, concentrates in business transaction. So Cheryl, let's jump into our conversation right now. I mentioned that we're talking about name, image, and likeness, but before we dive in and we get more granular, can I throw out some terms that will be useful and we'll be using over and over again? So for example, Cheryl, what, during our conversation, what does it mean when we're going to use a term in the context of this discussion, name, image, and likeness, and we'll abbreviate it to NILs? What does it mean when someone is referred to as a booster? First of all, I'd like to start with thanking Judy for having me on her podcast today. And as a corporate lawyer, I, among my peers, love to have defined terms because it helps to make sure that everyone is on the on a level playing field. So a booster is typically defined as an individual, an independent, an agency, a corporate entity, or other organization who was known or who should have been known by a member of the institution's executive or athletics administration to participate in the promotion of the institution's intercollegiate athletics program and to assist with the benefits provided to those enrolled student athletes or their family members. Additional caveat is that in in traditional roles, a booster is not allowed to communicate directly with a potential or prospective student athlete. And any time, and now just taking this for a second, out of name, image, and likeness, If you have been involved, if you have, if you're a parent of an athlete, if you yourself are a student athlete, you know that this concept of boosters, a lot of times you hear about universities getting in trouble or boosters. I remember, Cheryl, of a case recently, it had to do with Adidas and individuals within that corporation or soliciting. And so this whole idea and concept of boosters, if you really, if it's not watched, if it's not, if there aren't rules that apply to it, it can get both athlete, it can get the booster parent in a lot of trouble. Another word that we're going to use throughout this conversation is collective. What does that term mean as we're going to use it today? A collective is typically identified as a business that is created, that facilitates and provides NIL opportunities to students. Sometimes they are former athletes that have decided to take advantage of this new NIL opportunities. Sometimes they are just corporations that are have created a separate marketing band. But most problematic is they are often comprised of boosters, companies, and other interested parties that contribute financial resources to be used for the benefit of creating NIL opportunities for prospective student athletes at a particular university or college. And I'll give our listeners an example of that. So Nike, the corporation, several of their ex-executives and prominent Oregon residents launched a collective, as you were just describing, named Division Street. And the purpose, as stated by this company, is to help student athletes and the University of Oregon maximize branding opportunities. So in other words, Division Street had said, now again, these are, they have direct ties to to Nike, to the university. I think um, they brought in some WNBA players to lead in this division street. And they're saying that they want to help students monetize their name, image, and likeness. So the company and these collectives and also division street, you see a lot of these collectives, they launched soon after um, in 2021, 
when the NCAA deregulated name, image, and likeness, and when you had some certain wins within not only the Supreme Court, but within state courts, where you saw athletes who had filed cases, they were getting verdicts in their favor, stating that, yes, student athletes can be compensated for their labor in school. That, Cheryl, brings us to kind of the next part of our discussion. How did we get here? Naming and likeness, why is this even relevant? What was the landscape of college sports before 2021 when we think about can a student be compensated? Were they being compensated? I'll answer part of this question and then I'm going to throw it over to you because I do, I love this topic because for so long, if you have a child in sports and it's every parent's dream, it's every child's dream, you know, that they'll rise to not only say their travel, but then they'll get a college scholarship. And so many times, and for so long, the um, NCAA has said that compensation would come in the form of scholarships. So can you talk to us a little bit about the history of compensation for students, what it was, what it wasn't before 2021? Absolutely. So prior to that, universities and colleges could provide athletic scholarships to provide tuition. They could provide funds that provided for room and board for student athletes. They could provide for certain things like laptops and things like that that they needed directly for their academic experience within that university. They could not provide cars. They could not provide funds. They could not provide certain things related to their particular sport. For instance, if you are a tennis player, you had certain things provided to you, but certain things you were, you were, had to provide on your own. There are a lot of, and historically have been a lot of recruiting violations where either boosters and or the universities have violated these NCAA policies and provided cars and vehicles or financial support or trips, transportation for student athletes to come and visit their universities or providing them vehicles to their directly to the students or, or there's a couple of cases, high profile cases where it went to their parents. As a result of that, the universities were sanctioned and were prevented from participating in certain NCAA tournaments as a result of those recruiting violations. The boosters, I believe, were also sanctioned. And I think the students and or their parents, their families were also sanctioned and fined, per- perhaps. But the fallout of that was, you know, you know, one of the reasons that the NIL have has been promoted as widely it has been since July of 2021 when the Supreme Court struck down the NCAA caps on student-athlete athletic benefits is that these things have been going on for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, These kinds of violations, payment underneath the table, benefits that have, have been going on for years. And the theory is on the supporters of having this, these NIL quote-unquote regulations is that it should level the playing field and bring the stuff that was behind the curtains or under the table out into the open. But before I go further into that, the Supreme Court case that was decided in July of 2021 was actually an antitrust Supreme Court case. And there was a unanimous nine to zero decision in support of a very narrow tailored limitation striking down the NCAA caps on student-athlete academic benefits, for instance, reimbursement, payment for academic-related expenses, paid postgraduate internships, free laptops, or musical instruments on antitrust grounds, that it was a collusion between the universities and the NCAA that prevented students from receiving any funds in excess of those particular items that were that were permitted underneath the NCAA rules and regulations. The Supreme Court, and there was a couple of blistering uh, concurring decisions as well, that stated that these rules and regulations were an antitrust violation and would not be permitted. 
and it allowed or it paved the way for the adoption of an interim policy that the NCAA put into place that allowed NIL monetization for athletes, student athletes, and created a whole new reality within the academic sports arena, both from the universities, from the student athletes and their families, as well as the boosters. And I love that you made that highlighted that point about the Alston decision by the Supreme Court. Because if you're not an attorney, if you're an observer of this student of student athletes of college sports, how that case was reported in mainstream media was this is definitively speaking to the improprieties and what was going on in college sports and students being taken advantage of. So that is an important nuance, but also out in the mainstream. And what I saw a lot, Cheryl, was that you had a lot of advocates for student athletes who used the Alston decision and who were promoting that finally, this is an opportunity for especially players in the for large universities in football, so say Texas, Alabama, that finally it was an opportunity for them to no longer be taken advantage of. So that I, I love that you made that distinction, but it did. When you use that term, you know, a whole new reality, that is what we're working under with name, image, and likeness for so long. And you tell me about any experiences or examples you have. But I know on my end, Cheryl, for so long, I have been watching how universities, head coaches, especially at your larger institutions throughout the country, sometimes make more money than the governors of a state. So much is riding on these athletic programs, especially football, also basketball, and student athletes. And there were friend of the court briefs that were filed in Alston, who noted that everyone for so long, there was a boiling anger and resentment that I noticed on the part of student athletes, that their name, their image, their likeness was creating these powerhouses, you know, the Texas, the University of Alabama, the Auburns, they were creating these huge institutions They were creating the NCAA, by the way, that as we were defining terms, unless in case anybody doesn't know, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, that these students were creating for the NCAA, for networks, for companies, billions of dollars. I think the the network deal signed between media outlets and the NCAA to carry March Madness, to carry these bowls were in the billions, nine billion or more, respectively. And that was increasing the tensions and the questions as to why can't these students be compensated for their talent, for their skills. So that's also part of this, what is behind this, what led to the Alston case, as I see it. But again, thank you for making that distinction that that was an antitrust, but then you had so many others who interpreted it. And it was part of the bigger discussion as to should they be compensated? Should students, is just tuition, is our books just enough? Does it pollute? And we'll get into this. Are we polluting the college experience? Part of the Alston case also dealt with this whole discussion on amateurism and whether allowing students to profit from their NILs whether that was polluting the whole experience of amateur sports. I don't know. What have you seen? So outside of just this being a strictly antitrust, what kind of discussions have you heard on your end about what name, image, and likeness, what this new reality will be? Well, interestingly enough, I want to make an additional point. The Alston decision simply invalidated the NCAA restrictions on educational benefits. True. It did not go further to review or discuss the student-athlete NIL restrictions. 
it merely opened the gates on legislation. And the problem stemming from that is the NCAA, as a result of this Supreme Court landmark case, has been a little hesitant to really put some teeth into their new policy that allows this effective in July 21. So as we are rolling into this, there were a number of these collectives that were being formed and they were ready to go. And there were a number of states that started to enact their own legislation in support of or restricting or prohibiting NIL within their states. So it further exacerbates the divide between federal legislation and state government. And As a result of that, there is no consistency between the federal rules that would fall underneath the NCAA that would govern everyone within college athletic sports, but it allows for the states to have their own restrictions. So 28 to date, 28 states have some sort of regulation on their books. 22 states, doing the math, have no restrictions on their books. Mm -hmm. And there are 21 substantive differences between and among these states. So without a consistent or even playing field, the schools and the students not only need to know the rules with regard to NIL in general, but how they apply in the state that they live and how they apply in the school that they go to. Because it is a literal minefield if you are crossing state lines of what you're allowed to do when you can do it, and what it can govern. And if the state has no regulation whatsoever, then you're really, you have no guidance. And these things start all over. That's exactly what it is, Cheryl. It's a minefield. And as I've watched this develop, so Austin comes down in 2021, the NCAA, up until this point, they had strict rules, they had prohibitions. In response to Austin, the organization... NCAA, they themselves had to issue a new interim policy. And then like you were saying, states in turn, whether strategically done to benefit their universities or in an attempt to assist students, I'm not sure, you know, there's different reasons. So now we have this broken patchwork. And like you said, students need to know, let's give everybody an example. Let's use an example of, let's take a athlete, we'll call her Mary, tennis player. She's been a brilliant hard worker in tennis throughout her, you know, rec, travel, high school. Now she's at the point, you know, 10th, 11th grade, she's being recruited. She has come to a decision, you know, has to come to a decision in the 11th and 12th grade. Talk to us about she's being recruited by different colleges located in different states. What does that look like for what Mary has to do, what her parents have to do, and even the schools? How do all of these, for lack of a better word, players, how do they stay compliant under in this new reality? The only way that they can stay compliant is if they engage counsel. And depending on where the states that Mary was coming from will depend on what she needs to know. Uh, For instance, if Mary was coming from Texas, which is one of the few states where an athlete can be punished for signing an endorsement deal between the time period that she signs her scholarship agreement to go to school at Ohio State, for instance. If she signs that NIL endorsement agreement between the time that she signs the scholarship agreement and the time of her enrollment, she can be sanctioned by Texas. And there's a couple other states that have that same restriction. You know, it's very easy for Mary and the Marys of the, of the country out there to inadvertently step into a violation because they don't know what they don't know. And she's in an arena where she may be relying on the collective or the company that's provided her with this endorsement deal or the university that says, hey, don't worry about it. But at the end of the day, the burden, unfortunately, A, falls to her to be compliant. And B, she is the only one out of all of the players in this whole new arena that has to report to the NCAA 
what deal she has, when she got them, what they're worth, what the terms and conditions are. It's not the universities. This is not the collectives. It's the students that that burden falls to. And, you know, if you think about it, if we really put, you know, some more just, you know, factuals, dress up Mary a little bit, let's say that she's from a small town, limited access to professionals such as, you know, you know, attorneys or advisors, counsel, you know, she's been focused on just getting into school, maybe with, you know, one parent, two parent home. But and now the the onerous is on this student with and let's assume not much life experience, not much experience negotiating deals, reading the fine print, or even having the experience to span out and think, okay, this language may get me into trouble in this way under these circumstances, or may limit my ability to use my NIL under various circumstances. That to me sounds really frustrating and could be scary for someone now dealing with these new policies. Let's talk a little bit about then what are some of the, if we go now to the new landscape as it relates to recruiting, what do you think universities now or academic institutions, and I know that these new policies also apply to high school and high school students, but for purposes of this discussion and this episode, we're just looking at really at the college level. But how, if any impact, do you see on what colleges and universities need to understand or be aware of? Well, the colleges and universities have taken, depending on where they're located, have taken various different approaches to this. Some of them have been very supportive of their student athletes, for instance, creating workshops that provide them some education and guidance on what to look for in these agreements, how to create their brand, their social media brand, what they need to be aware of when they're going into these kinds of relationships. They're very, they are geared more to the students versus how can we negotiate a deal with a Nike or an Adidas or a major corporation in order to influence without creating any recruiting violations to influence a particular student to go into school at their university or college? And as a result of that, layered onto, layered onto this minefield, then you have larger universities that typically have had large academic and athletic budgets that are now putting together and supporting these collectives to create a sweetener for a particular student to come and play football or tennis or basketball at their university. And it prevents smaller universities that don't have those budgets, that don't have that the level of booster support within their organization to compete for the same players. So the students are now especially if they're in a situation where they're trying to get the most bang for their buck, which, you know, there's some merit in that. But the perspective becomes skewed because the impetus for academic and athletic scholarships for student athletes has been to provide them with the ability to go to a particular university and get an education. Now they are starting to lose some of their amateur status. Now they're able to not only negotiate an opportunity to go and play at a particular university in their choice of sports, but also to promote and provide an opportunity for them to enter into an NIL agreement that gives them additional monies. So now they have three jobs in college. They have the the requirement to perform academically in order to maintain their academic status to be eligible to play. They have to perform underneath the NIL, and they have to perform on the field. And for an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old, that's a lot of responsibility on them. A lot of responsibility. A lot. Can you imagine that? They're basically, in essence, and I've heard this said, and you tell me, you know, you're the business person. Tell me, in essence, NILs and a successful student athlete or a student athlete who's out there and at any level, but let's just think of someone more prominent. 
they're basically, in essence, becoming a small company, an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Correct? Exactly. They are the business of themselves. Yeah. And they are building a brand in their own name, image, and likeness. So sometimes that is, you know, the example of those kinds of things are promoting a particular brand of athletic apparel or shoes. Uh, so it's a product or Gatorade or anything along those lines. It's appearances at a local community business. It can be social media posts where they have to post a certain number of posts on their Insta stories, certain number of times, certain number of times a day, certain times of the week. And there's some gaming NILs that are out there to have their their image used in a a game, an e-sports game. And now they're starting to drift into the NFTs. Okay. So it's their it's their pictures. Okay. That are considered to be NFTs that are coming into play with these types of agreements. Okay. So what you're saying right now is essential to this conversation. And I think that if you're out there, your ears are going to perk up because right now Cheryl is going to talk about some basic NIL contract provisions that individuals, students, or if you're listening to this and you're part of the athletic department, if you're even you know part of one of these collectives, these some of the basic contract provisions that individuals should be aware of. And we're not going to cover all of them, but I know during our discussion before we hit record, Cheryl and I kind of talked about what in her experience she's seen that has been part of these endorsement contracts in the past, some general contract provisions that you'll see in any agreement. But sure, when we talk about NILs, let's pull out and talk about, for example, if you're a student, this agreement is being thrust upon you. You're coming, let's pick Mary. She's coming from a small town. She's absolutely excited even to be playing at the college level. And now there's the possibility of being compensated for maybe the program, putting her name up, or maybe a a business there in town. Maybe she's going now to school in a larger area and her image is going to be, you know, on the local sub shop. What are some basic language that she should be aware of? So let's take, for example, what if there's a morality clause in there? Can you talk to us about what that is and maybe what Mary should be aware of when she's thinking about it and she sees the morality clause? Absolutely. So in this morality clause, we see these, have traditionally seen these in Instagram influencer contracts or modeling the agency contract or actor agreements. They've gone back for years and years with an actor and actress agreements with studios. What these morality clause allow them, allow the companies that they've entered into an NIL agreement with it allows the company to oftentimes unilaterally terminate the contract if they feel, the company feels, that the student athlete has violated some sort of policy or stance that the company doesn't want to be affiliated with. And sometimes it's sometimes it can be she's posting inappropriate pictures or posts in, within her social media on her personal page oftentimes not necessarily on her professional Insta page. She may be caught in, you know, she may be caught in it in a situation where she's pulled over for a DUI. And that may trigger a violation of the morality clause within the contract. It may be something where the company has changed their view on a particular item or public stance or social social justice stance. And the student has, student athlete has violated that or posted that or is no longer in compliance with that. But that morality clause needs to be a mutual right to terminate because sometimes this, it's not the student that has changed their social justice stance. It's the company that's changed what they're going to promote or statements that they come out in in a political campaign or social justice campaign. And the student 
no longer wants to be affiliated with that particular company, regardless of what the money is, based on the company stance. So that mutual morality clause needs to be in place that either party needs to have the right to terminate the relationship set forth in the NIL agreement for this set number of reasons. And those are those we typically find those in this case is tied to morality or our viewpoint, but we find that in termination clauses for cause. And then within the the contract for clause is then defined as to what for cause means within the two parties for that contract. What you're saying is so important, Cheryl, because you always think about it. You hear that a, a news story hits, you know, football player, basketball player, lacrosse, soccer player, just like you said, DWI, or maybe there was some type of incident with a girlfriend or a partner or a boyfriend of domestic relations or something like that. And so we tend to think of morality clauses directing unilaterally or one way the company terminating. And I think it's important. What you're saying is that no student athlete, we are right now, someone had said that right now, the time that we're living in, we haven't seen a bigger shift in social issues in what I think it was 50, 60 years in the Supreme Court. So for example, and it doesn't matter where you stand, the Supreme Court recently ruled on reproductive rights, gun rights, the rights of criminal defendants with Miranda. So there's such a huge shift. And we also are in an age of social media where athletes are using their platform to speak out on social issues. And you, athlete, what Cheryl is saying to you and what I'm understanding is that maybe you are, you and your brand that you've built up even before you've gotten to college, you are adamant about some social justice. Maybe it's gun rights, maybe it's reproductive rights. And now you sign with a company and this company does a 180 or maybe for the first time reveals that they're diametrically opposed to your brand's stance. So Cheryl, I love that you're telling individuals when you're looking at these agreements, ensure that mutually you all, you can terminate if this morality or social issues are not aligned with your values. What would you talk about in the contract provisions to ensure that the athletes can retain control even before, rather I should say, before they get to the document, before they're looking at it, what can they do to make sure that they retain control during negotiations? And I guess that's where we should start or before. But I guess, you know, negotiations happens before, during the contract signing. But what, what can you talk to talk about a little bit with how does an athlete keep some of that control during negotiations? What type of mindset? What do they need to have that? Well, first and foremost, it becomes a clear understanding of what the terms and conditions are going to be with regard to the NIL agreement. What are the roles and responsibilities of each party and what kind of restrictions or exclusivity provisions are going to be put into this agreement that will limit what the student athlete can do with any other company? Because the goal of this is really if they're going to pursue these NIL agreements is to not to just do do one. They want to be able to do other things as they increase their brand and as their collegiate experience continues. So making sure that first and foremost, that these student athletes truly understand the bargaining power that they have in going into these contract negotiations. They have and hold a lot of power because These corporations want to have them underneath their brand umbrella. The universities want to have them underneath their collegiate experience. So even though your small town girl from the middle of Iowa doesn't mean that you need to downplay the influence you have in going into these negotiations. And it's extremely important for these student athletes to know their worth. Mm Mm-hmm. And part of that transfers into negotiating these terms and not just taking these agreements as presented to them as carte blanche. It's like, oh, I have to sign it. 
I don't have the right to question what this means. I don't have the right to say, no, I don't like that provision. I want to have it this way. And some of that is just not being overly eager to just take whatever is given to you. Push back. Stand up for yourself now. Because if you don't do it now, you really won't have the opportunity to do it later. And it's the same with any other any other agreement. If it's an employment agreement or a business agreement, you have to ask for what it is that you truly want. And it's very important to understand what those roles and responsibilities are and what is going to be required of that student athlete in order to perform underneath the terms of this NIL agreement. As I mentioned, give us some examples of that, Cheryl, when you use when you use those concepts of what their roles and responsibilities. You can use any any example that that you've seen in the past. So, as I mentioned, there's there, there, this these kinds of agreements really create three different jobs and levels of responsibilities for these student athletes. Right. So, if one of the requirements are that you make personal appearances on behalf of the local pizza place or the local you know, restaurant, how does that impact on your school? How does it impact on your performance? If you have, if it's in the middle of your season, you know, do you have the ability, the time, time availability to appear at those, at the public appearances that are set out in your contract? Right. And do they take into consideration what you have to do as a student athlete in providing and setting out the appearances. Those of you that are are not student athletes or don't have student athletes in your family, the misnomer that the only time that you are that your time is consumed is during the season is a complete misnomer. Right. <laughs> the training and the commitment to the gym and that that goes in off season is as time consuming as it is when you're in the midst of your season. You know, the other thing that falls into that's also can be a time suck situation is the social media. Like if you are required to promote a particular clothing line or particular product on your in your social media channel, your Insta channel, Insta story, how many times do you have to post per day? How many times do you have to post per week? Mm-hmm. And are you able to meet those commitments? Because if you breach those time metrics, then it becomes a terminable event. Right, right. When you think of social media, I follow this one young lady, basketball player, Zaya Cook, and she is extremely active on social media. And I often think, wow, how much time is she putting into that? I mean, she's brilliant in her social media and very mature and very professional, but that's a great point about you know the time commitment and understanding that. And what that looks like together with your studying, your working out, your, you know, your own, I mean, college. Yes, we're thinking about this from a business, but it's also a a life experience. And you don't want to forget that. You touched on a point that I want to extract and want us to distill this whole concept of being exclusive or exclusivity. What could that language look like in an agreement? And what should a person be thinking about how that could impact them? So there's two types of exclusivity that factors into these kinds of agreements. First is for a product. So if the student athlete signs an NIL contract with Nike, Nike is not going to be too terribly appreciative of them if they show up in their instant story or if they're in certain circumstances, if their university doesn't have Nike product within their uniforms, but it's Adidas or it's Under Armour or whatever the product is, competing product line. So looking at those, the outline of what that product exclusivity is and what's in the student athlete's control and what's not within the student athlete control is ultimately important. And making sure if you're promoting Nike shoes, does that promotion of Nike shoes extend into anything else that Nike has? What is that exclusivity uh, requirement within that NIL? Right, right. Because as I mentioned, sometimes it's not within the student's control. Right. And how many times have you heard 
a client come in and try to say, well, I just didn't know. Unfortunately, the onerous really is on you when you're signing an agreement to understand, to know. And that's why you do need a professional that can say, look, this clause will impact you and affect you in this way. What about, what can you tell individuals looking at these agreements when they're thinking about non-disclosure and non-disparagement, that type of language? What should they be considering when they see that? So the non-disclosure factors in, and because the terms of these contracts are not disclosed, except for the voluntarily registration by the students with the NCAA, and I don't believe that those filings are made public or easily made public. They're probably available underneath the federal request for information, the FOIA request. Mm -hmm. But for the general public, it's not going to be available. And the reason that the companies want to have those terms kept confidential is because they want to have the ability to negotiate different terms with different athletes. Well, they will provide compensation for to, you know, the the new star quarterback at one university is not going to necessarily be the same that they will provide somebody else that's going to play, even if in the same sport, going to be a quarterback at a smaller university or a smaller college. So the companies want to make sure that the, the terms and conditions and the compensation set out on these agreements cannot be disclosed. And those disclosure, non-disclosure agreements need to be narrowly tailored for geography and need to be narrowly tailored for time. They cannot or should not, for the student's benefit, extend into perpetuity because that's not the compensation that they're being paid for. They're being paid for their NIL, not the non-disclosure piece of it. We see this more often in like employment agreements or settlement agreements. But they factor in, in in these NIL agreements as well. And the other one is the non-disparagement, which means that at the end of the normal term of the contract, if it's not renewed, or in the event that there's a termination because of breach or non-compliance, the student athlete wants to make sure that they are not disparaged within the public for whatever the terms of the whatever the reason for the termination was. And the corporations want to make sure that if there's a termination, that the athlete doesn't go to social media to tell the rest of the world how horrible their experience was with this corporation. So those, once again, those two types of restrictive covenants in an agreement need to be narrowly tailored, very specifically negotiated on behalf of the student with regard to these corporations. And they are negotiable. They can be modified, but you have to ask. The company is not going to modify those if you don't ask. And I always, I've been practicing law for a very long time, and I always counsel my clients, business clients, and make no mistake, these student athletes are business entrepreneurs. Um, If you don't ask, you will never get. Yeah, yeah. And the worst that they can do is say, no, we're not going to change that but they're not going to voluntarily change it if you don't ask for it. And that goes back, that loose back shirt to what you were saying before, the mindset, the approach that you that's essential when you're viewing these contracts that you have to believe, you have to know your worth even before you step up and you have to demand, you know, and think about what you're negotiating for and what you want the end of the agreement to look like. I think that really highlights that point. It makes me think because, you know, in our example that we use, whether it's our fictitious Mary or whether it's the real life example of the um, women, the University of Oregon player, Sedona Price, other than her amazing athleticism as a player, during the most recent March Madness, she her, a video that she created went viral when she showed the disparities between the men's workout area and the women's workout area. And when you look at it, it was, I mean, your, your mouth dropped open, you know, because you would think that we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the passage of Title IX, you know, which was 
implemented to address the disparities in, you know, athletic sports and other educational parts for men and women. But I say this to say that Sedona Price, not only from that video and her kind of blowing the whistle on this disparity in this day and age, she went on to be approached as reported in the media, be approached by so many companies that wanted to align themselves. And when you think about, you know, kind of when you think about you're an athlete, whether you're someone at the level of Sedona Price or in our fictitious Mary example, you can be so enthusiastic and so excited to just, you know, be with this brand. But what I hear you saying, Cheryl, is that pump the brakes, slow down, understand this language, collaborate, retain a professional who can tell you how this is going to impact your immediate athletic career, your college career, and then also your business slash brand. Is is that accurate how I'm hearing you say that? It is. It is absolutely accurate. If you're an athlete, like you just demonstrated, and brands are coming to you with an NIL contract, take the time to read them. Take the time to ask questions. Take the time to digest them. They're not going to pull the, the, the offering if you ask questions and enter into a discussion and conversation with them. And they're not going to pull it if you say, wait a minute, I need, I need to make sure I need to retain legal counsel to make sure I understand what my obligations are underneath the terms of this agreement. Don't be afraid to ask for, uh, to advocate for yourself. And sometimes you can do that on your own if you're a more sophisticated student athlete. But a lot of times it's, you know, it, it is outside of their bailiwick. It's outside of their, their acumen and they need to have that legal help. Some of the universities and colleges are actually providing that as a resource, one, to make sure that they stay in compliance with NCAA in, this, in their state requirements, but also an acknowledgement and registration that their student athletes are part of their community. And they want to make sure that they have the additional education and wherewithal in order to understand what it is that they're doing within, within this new network and this new world of NIL agreements, making sure that they don't inadvertently get themselves into trouble. And I know that we've covered a lot and that we could, t- I could talk about this topic for a, a while, but I'm just, there's maybe just two more points that I want to bring out. Talk to us briefly about what a person should be thinking about regarding intellectual property rights. Say you're a student and you're known by a specific nickname, you've cultivated that name, maybe you're have already informally built your brand up online, you know, if you're this amazing lacrosse player. I mean, can you tell that I'm deep, knee deep in lacrosse in my house? So I'm <laughs> using that example. But you're, you're a lacrosse player and, you know, you're Swiss lightning or something, something unique. What does that athlete need to be thinking about as far as intellectual property rights, if anything at all? So depending on what your agreements say, this is not in, in the traditional world of performing services. This is not a made-for-work situation. And you can negotiate, the student-athlete can negotiate the right to register their own trademark, their own copyright protection, that they own the intellectual property because they want to make sure that unless this agreement's going to be an irrevocable agreement, which I've don't believe that any of them ever will. You want to make sure that you have the ability to take that brand that you've created underneath and while you're performing under this particular NIL, you have the ability to take that with you. Famous actors and actresses and singers and performers have done this for years. For instance, I believe that Beyonce has received a trademark registration for her daughter, Blue Ivy, just within her name. Right. There's nothing that's going to preclude a student athlete that has that same prominence in doing the same thing. There are specialized intellectual properties that specialize in this particular type of representation that are available in most intellectual properties. Attorneys, all they do are trademark 
copyrights registrations and prosecution of them as well. It becomes exceedingly important too to protect that once you have it too. So I have some colleagues that recently litigated a trademark infringement, local infringement against the Kardashian family and won their litigation after years and years of litigation. And not to say that a corporation is going to are going to try and infringe on the intellectual property rights of an athlete, but you want to make sure within the context of your agreement that you have the provisions that I that are always raised to you of the if this then that provisions. You have the intellectual property right as a student athlete. If during the term of this contract or after the contract is terminated the other party tries to infringe on those intellectual property rights, this is the rights and remedies that you have against them. It's built into the contract. Both parties are signed on to it. It helps to limit the kind of litigation that can stem out of a breach of contract or termination or wrongful termination um, because the parties going into the relationship have agreed to it. Part of the, but, and then part of the representation that your counsel will provide as your walking you through these NIL agreements is what kind of intellectual property rights do you want to have are appropriate for you and how do you get them? Right. So as I said, we're not going to do an exhaustive, you know, line by line of every provision that you should see um, in a NIL. These are just some of the things that are common. But Cheryl, so, you know, when the Alston case came down, the ruling came down by the Supreme Court, I'll tell you, I was excited. I, you know, I fall along the lines of wanting student athletes to be compensated or to be fairly compensated. I look at it not only from just that view, but also from a kind of um, systemic racist racism view of how these teams, especially at the big universities, are made up largely of Black and Brown, African-American athletes. And that for years, historically, when you look at the NCAA, you know, 100, 100, over 100 years ago, how they were established and how there was just a concerted and intentional effort to not compensate African-Americans. So I was particularly excited that now there's going to be a pathway for there to be more fairness and greater compensation for the work they were put in. There was always a discussion, are they athletes? Are they laborers? And that was also mentioned in some of the briefs that were submitted in the Alston case. But what I have to ask you now, I'm starting to get a little disillusioned because you see what you talked about earlier, the collectives, whether it's Division Street, whether it's ex-Nike, you know, alumni, executives, it feels to me that what I had hoped would be level playing field is looking a little predatory again. I don't know. What is your kind of um, professional or personal opinion as to what this new reality is shaping up to be? I, I actually agree. And, and the NCAA has realized that they have that same concern. In fact, in May of this year, May of 22, nearly a year after the NIL regulation went to existence, they've now realized that they need to find a way to enforce the NIL policies with regard to these collectives and to prevent the collectives, which quite frankly, for the most part, are usually comprised of boosters affiliated with a particular university for doing what the universities could not do. And they've issued some guidance that prevents university representation of student-athlete ability and reputation. So basically, they're making sure that there's still, even with, even with the NIL, there's not a pay-for-play situation going on out there. They can be provided compensation for their appearances and for their promotion of particular products, but they cannot be paid to play. And they cannot negotiate these agreements in theory so that if you go to XYZ University, then you get this beautiful NIL agreement with Nike Sports, for instance. Right. They're also prevented from recruiting. There's not supposed to be any communication between the athletic director and the scouts for the university and the collectives. 
So you can't go behind the scenes and try and do something that's still prohibited. And the realization is there still is no longer a level playing field. These collectives have a lot of money and they're influencing where students can have the opportunity to go to school and two-pronged approach. It's an athletic scholarship combined with a beautiful, very financially lucrative NIL agreement. And universities that don't have a lot of money or smaller communities or smaller, smaller arenas, you know, your D3 schools, not your D1 schools, your D3 schools or Grambling University, the coach and athletic director for Grambling University has come out and some of the, the research materials that I've looked at stating that it really has made it difficult for them to recruit students to come to school at Grambling because they can't compete at the same financial level and they don't have the same business relationships that these larger universities do. Right. So we're still on an even playing field. And then factored in the fact that there's no national standard, there's no national metrics that need to be met. It is a state-by-state situation, which, depending on where your university is, and that's not going to change, right? Depends on what you can do with regard to these NIL agreements, whether you can even have them. Right. So if there's a star athlete that you've been you know, scouting and, and have been wanting to have to come to your university and you're sitting in a state that does not allow these contracts, and that student athlete has a choice between going to your school that has a great legacy, has a great coach, great program, versus going to another school that may not be as great, but they have an NIL contractor agreement sitting, you know, sitting in the wings, the money's going to talk. Right. So there are so many things to consider. And that brings, I mean, like I said before, we could probably talk about this, the different nuances and the iterations and the impact of these NIL. But I know that our team at Grising, we're able to help. I have a background in having represented student athletes, understanding all of the different you know, commitments they have. You, Cheryl, you're licensed in Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and the federal courts there. Talk to us a little bit about what services Grising Law provides to universities and student athletes when we think about NILs. And that's the way we'll wrap this up. So I really view this the rep, potential representation for the student athletes, much like I view my representation of entrepreneurs within the eco entrepreneur ecosystem, that they need to know and they need to be guided and they need to be properly represented. And compensation, it can be a little creative because they've got a contract, they've got the opportunity. So they might not have, as they're sitting in my office, they might not have funds in the bank account, but if this NIL goes through, then they will, and they will have the ability to pay. But part of that too is also the education, the education of student athletes and and working in conjunction with universities and colleges on, from Grising's perspective, from is twofold, making sure that the university is compliant with NCAA as well as their state regulations. And second, helping the universities build this student-athlete ecosystem and provide them with an appropriate platform to support their student-athletes, including a workshop on how to handle financial literacy, how to handle contract negotiations, what they need to know about entering into these agreements and what they really mean in the short term as well as long term, and then providing that as an additional resource There's a number of different universities and law schools that provide these kinds of benefits for within the entrepreneur ecosystem now. It's not a far stretch for the universities to also provide it to student athletes. Right. Because make no mistake about it, what you're saying is that now students, universities, you are, you're building a business and to do that right to do it so that it benefits you. I know that in some of the circles that I'm in, Cheryl, these it's thought of that now being able to monetize your name, image, and likeness will finally, for the first time, allow so many athletes 
from certain backgrounds to finally build wealth and build a legacy. Of course, there are opponents to that that you know would say that that's not the purpose of these, but that is how it's viewed in some areas, that this is an opportunity. And if that's the case, if you're thinking about building wealth or using this to build a legacy, you've got to do it on the right foundation. And you have to do that with the right professionals. Cheryl, this was great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about the provisions that students and universities should be aware of and talking to us about the history of NILs and where they're going and your professional and personal opinions. But, you know, any other things you want to say or leave with us before we go? I would just like to say thank you, Judy, for inviting me to share with you today. And I also want to give a big thank you and kudos to to our law clerk, Carly Weinberg, who helped with the research on today's podcast. Yes, thank you, Carly. Dug into the statutes and the cases that have, have been discussed today. And we at Grising are a team as well, and she's a welcome addition to our team. So thanks to Carly and thank you to Judy. Excellent. Thank you, everyone. And thank you for listening. And until next time, be well. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.